millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <clears throat> You're listening to the Sands Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, adventures, and ghosts. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimbrellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show we have the author of A Tiger in Eden, The Glass Kingdom, and most recently Mammoth, a book released in tandem with a new exhibit at Victoria Museum, where he is the editor-in-chief. He's written for more publications than I can name right here. Chris Flynn, a pleasure to have you on the show. Hello George, nice to see you. You too. Yes, I guess great to have you on. You've you've, you've written a bunch of books, You've you write constantly, and you're like a part of it. It's an interesting difference from the author side of things being the editor for the victoria museum where did that start i want to just ask about that first off right that's fairly recent basically in in a very strange unprecedented turn of events when mammoth came out because mammoth is all about fossils that are on sale at an auction and you know museums are trying to acquire them and they get sort of outbidded by celebrities it didn't occur to me at the time although it probably should have that a lot of people who work at museums went and read the book (laughs) and Makes sense. So I got an email about a year ago out of the blue from head of exhibitions at Melbourne Museum. And he wanted me to come in for a meeting. And I didn't really know what it was about. It was all very vague. And I just thought they wanted to consult with me on something. But when I got there, I'm in this meeting with all these smiling faces looking at me and they'd all read Mammoth. And they wanted me to come in because they had just bought a triceratop, which is 67 million years old and is now on show at Melbourne Museum. But at the time, it was just being cleaned. The fossil was being cleaned in Canada and was going to be transported to Melbourne during the pandemic. And they wanted someone, because in Mammoth, I give voice to the fossils. They wanted to hire me to create a voice and personality for the 67 million year old triceratops skeleton they had just acquired. And that led to me being appointed editor in residence in there and to create, to help create a suite of books to accompany the exhibit. So there's four Triceratops books that got created, one of which I wrote and one of which I was the editor on. And now, weirdly, I find myself with a desk at the museum speaking to actual paleontologists and clever people looking out over the exhibition building in Melbourne. I don't really know how this has happened in my life. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay, so I mean, straight away, I actually did butcher a little bit the intro. So I thought Mammoth was written actually as part of that. So you're saying that was before and it's Horridus, the new one that's part of Yes, the- yes. Um, uh, right. Ma- Mammoth came out in 2020. It was sort of, I had written two books before. You mentioned them at the top and they hadn't done great. And Mammoth was my sort of last gasp attempt at like trying to do a weird, funny book that pleased me. And I didn't think anyone else would be bothered with it. And it ended up doing really well and finding quite a wide audience. And so that led to me getting this job and creating the books for Horridus. So Jesus, you just really can't tell where writing a book's going to going to land you, really. Yeah. I mean that's uh <laughs> I mean it sounds like a best case scenario for you. Like really that worked out very well. It sort of is because my you know my fascination as an artist is the sort of byways and alleyways of history and the, you know, forgotten people and, you know, strange tales that don't get talked about that much, which I sort of packed that stuff into Mammoth. And now I find myself in a museum that has, I don't know, 21 million objects or something, most of them in storage that, you know, people haven't seen for decades. And there's all these million, literally millions of stories in there waiting to be told. So it's, it's like, I'll never have to come up with an idea ever again. <laughs> And, I mean, and like, to be honest, you're, I actually, I read Mammoth when it was sent out to me and I, I thought it was a really good way of doing that because it was a really engaging way of having characters involved to give like voice to these moments. And uh, mm. yeah, I thought it was really entertaining. Uh, like, 
This does explain, because as I was reading, I, th- I thought it was part of the Victoria Museum. I was like, where's the Victoria Museum in this? And then he goes on this, you, you focus on the Irish immigrants in America side of things as well. And I was like, this seems not what I expected based on what I thought was the thing. So this right. makes a lot yeah, more yeah. sense to me this now. This is yeah, making was, more sense to you now. Project. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's pretty rare that mammoth actually makes sense to anyone. So if you say it's starting to make sense to you, I'm pleased about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it was a, it's a unique way of doing that. I really liked it. Um, so let, let's, but let's, let's start off with your book of choice for today. And we can jump around and definitely talk about Mammoth more yep. and your previous books. Uh, it's, it's called Book Issue. I'm going to have plenty of people who are very interested in your author experiences. Uh, so, but let's start with that. So your book of choice for today is? I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, 1954. A classic uh, sci-fi classic, not and I think not just because of the recent movie. It's actually been made into movies three times. I think so that's how it has. It has. There was a Vincent Price movie version, a black and white Vincent Vincent Price version, which was kind of the most faithful to the book. And then, famously, in the sixties, or maybe it was the maybe it might have even been the early seventies, Charlton Heston starred in the Omega Man, which was a version of it that was very odd because it's Charlton Heston the you know, the, the arch Republican as a sort of hippie survivalist. And I saw it when I was very young and thought it was amazing because they shot it, a lot of the scenes very early in the morning in LA on a Sunday morning in the 70s and the city looked empty. And that was a really sort of compelling thing for me, as I suppose it probably always has been for a lot of us, this fantasy of being the only person, you know, around in a city or town and walking around and then, of course, it happened for real to everyone. So yeah. I feel like I feel like I am legend was very prescient in many ways. Yeah. So I guess for people to just get a quick summary of the story for people who haven't maybe uh, read or seen the book, and I'll, I'll just very briefly. Basically, there's a last man alive. There's a virus that's gone around and infected or everyone else, and they've become a variation on vampires. And it's the story of this man's survival on his own with these quote unquote vampires in it mm. and then kind of towards the end there is a quite an interesting twist that happens I feel like I'm we're gonna have to spoil this one because the ending we, is so we probably will I mean most people so, have probably seen the Will Smith um, movie version you know where he roams the post-apocalyptic world slapping people on the mouth uh, no uh, yeah uh, no um but <laughs> step at once you had to do that yeah reference. that's right the, um, <laughs> had to make a Will Smith reference the movie the Will Smith movie whilst you know looked great and everything. It did deviate quite strongly from the ending. And in the book, the book's quite a sort of sad, sort of terrifying tale of a a man who's just barricaded inside his house. He's a scientist and he doesn't quite understand what's happened to everyone. His neighbors have all transformed into these nocturnal bloodsucker type people that seem like vampires, but he doesn't really believe it. He doesn't believe any of the myths. But they assemble every night around his house at the bottom of his garden and just chant his name, Neville, Neville. And he has to drink whiskey and crank up the music on his stereo just to try and blot them out. And then during the day, he roams the streets looking for survivors and also testing out um, his theories on these sleeping people by, you know, trying garlic out on them and seeing if that affects them or... He ends up just staking loads of them through the heart. And he slowly comes to the around to the notion that they might be some kind of vampire. And he was bitten by a bat or something when he was very young. And so he's the only one who's immune to it. But the sad thing about the book is that he's absolutely destroyed by loneliness. And and he he becomes so hell-bent on um destroying these sort of sick people as he sees them they're sick that he he just misses the truth of the matter and that is that society has actually moved on and whilst he is locked in his house at night yes there's these people sort of moaning and groaning outside his house but there's a whole society out there that's operating where people have adapted to being nocturnal and and having sort of desire for blood and they've just moved on and he's unaware of it and he's actually the monster in their midst because during the day he's out roaming around killing them. So he just hasn't adapted to the new changing world and he's clutching on to the old one. And of course, eventually they hunt him down and he realizes the error of his ways, but it's too late by then. Yeah, he finds out that he's actually the monster <laughs> like in it all because he's refusing to change or accept that things have moved on from where he was, which 
He's a very thematically rich theme, I think, and a <laughs> absolute sucker punch for everyone who would have read it the first time. Really? So I guess before going into anything else, uh, why is this? Why'd you pick this book? I, I don't know. I, it's an impossible question when I ask people favorite book, but why did this one spring to mind? No, it, it sort of keeps recurring in my life. I read it quite young, probably at that sort of teenage age of angst, and it sort of appealed to me, this idea of, you know, being alone and, and trying to cope with that and, you know, you can't identify with the people around you and and this sort of really compelling fantasy of just everyone being gone and you have the city or town to yourself, which everyone got to indulge themselves a little bit in that fantasy during COVID lockdowns, I suppose. You know, we all would have spent, you know, some time wandering the streets probably by yourself, no one around. And I think it sort of taught me a little bit about change and how to how to deal with it and not be afraid of it. And I've lived in a lot of different countries and I've worked so many different jobs in my life and always had to kind of adapt to survive. I'm quite good at that. You know, I've learned a few languages and moved on and, you know, quite good at taking care of myself and not being afraid of when things change. And I think it's kind of been a book that's quite, that's prepared me quite well for, the modern world of uncertainty that we live in. So I, I, I do, I am fond of it. And I recently spent like a hundred bucks and bought a uh, very beautiful edition of it. That's by the Folio Society in the UK. They only do, they only print a certain number of books, but it's beautifully illustrated. And, and I read it. It's a little bit dated. It's written in the fifties, but, but geez, the themes are pretty compelling. And, and that ending is still an absolute killer. I just want to put out to everyone who can't see that he, you just picked up the book there, the Folio Society book next to you, which it looks fancy. It mm, does. It is. It is. Yeah. So I guess to relate to the stuff, you, were you writing even back then? Did you start writing late? Was that part of the appeal as well, just seeing a book that's well-written and engaging that way? Yeah. I, I mean, I was always a writer, when, even when I was a kid. Um, I sort of escaped into the library as a kid. I grew up in Belfast and it wasn't at the height of the Troubles and it wasn't like the greatest place in the world. And That's an understatement. And, yeah. Not um, the greatest. Second greatest, but yeah. Second the greatest, maybe <laughs> after Dingle. Yes, that's right. I know you're a Dingle man. So um, yeah, Look, I I, to, like yeah. I said, if my cousin married an Irishman. I've spent plenty of time in Dingle. Love it. Great. There they you go. <laughs> more pubs than people, that place. That's right. Classic yeah. West, West Coast Irish town, really. So my, my parents were illiterate. And oh. so we had no books in the house. So sorry, we had we had three books in the house. We had the Illustrated Bible, and we had A. A. Milne's The House at Pooh Corner, and we had William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. So those were the first three books that I read. Okay, that's uh, an interesting <laughs> range in that. Yes, somehow, there is. I do feel like those kind of relate to I Am Legend somehow. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, you're you're probably right. The sort of demonic Between- possession. The yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I found libraries as a refuge when I was quite young and the librarian sort of took me in and would recommend books to me and advanced me to the adult section quite early. And so I was always books for my escape from, I suppose, the sort of misery of uh, the world around me at the time. And always was a writer when I was traveling in my 20s and 30s and never really took it too seriously. Um, you know, I had the classic sort of, writing your you know uh, writing your poetry in your moleskin diary whilst you're whilst you're traveling sort of period but then in australia i eventually thought well maybe i've got a couple of books in me here and sat down to try and write them and it took me a while but my first book came out just before my 40th birthday and i read something at the time it said the average age of a first-time author is actually quite old it's 42 that may have changed a little bit now uh, it might have come down a little bit but most people actually struggle to get a book published in their 20s and 30s and those that do tend to get you know promoted quite a bit so it probably gives a bit of a false impression and I just turned 50 recently so I've I'm up to uh Three adult books two kids books and oh sorry I've got a second kids book coming out this year and um, my fourth book for adults comes out later this year so i i think i'm doing all right and i now seem to be actually able to um make it happen there's enough people have read my books now that there is a small appetite for them so and my very odd brand of historical curious humorous 
weirdness seems to f- have enough of an audience that, that publishers will still entertain me at their door. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's what I found interesting because I was when I was looking over your your previous written books, and it's interesting because like now I'm sitting here making the connection with something like I Am Legend as well because in a weird way from and I haven't read I'll be honest I haven't read those ones yet, but they seem like the first one is about an experience in Thailand and trying to survive in Thailand with some dodgy stuff going on. Was that right? Yes, that's right. Yes, a tiger in Eden. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was just about a young Irish guy who was trapped in Thailand and couldn't really leave for various reasons and, and him trying to work how to be a good person during that time. And the second one was set on a traveling carnival going up the east coast of Australia, set in the sort of carny world and, and the sort of small-time petty crime that, that sort of circulates around that world. And I did work very briefly on a on a traveling fair so right. <laughs> those kind of those early books yeah i i had a weird job on that man i had you know those sumo wrestling outfits that you zip kids into and then they fight each other yeah yeah i was in charge of that i was the referee i was dressed like a referee and i had to make the kids fight each other and then and then break them up when it got um, out of hand uh, amazing that's an interesting <laughs> job <laughs> You turned it into a book. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, so those first two books, there was you know an element of me channeling things that had happened to me to a degree, but then exaggerating them and uh, and turning them into something else. But then Mammoth is a complete departure from that, and that in itself is a bit of a confusing thing sometimes for readers. You know, there's this sort of expectation that once you've done a certain type of book, you're just going to do something similar next time and I've done three quite different books and my fourth book's different again so one of my friends who's a mechanic down here on on the Basque coast where I live he said to me how can anyone know what they're going to get from you <laughs> and it's a fair point you know but um yeah. I just I don't want to do the same thing all the time god no yeah, no, that's fair enough. You got to write what you feel like writing, basically. Mm, so that makes sense. That's right. Yeah, that, that, that's because that's what I thought was interesting. Because the first two do seem like much more human, like quite dark, like adult in the sense of like there's drugs and all that stuff going mm. on. And then Mammoth was a, quite a bit of a departure in some ways because it was obviously just these moments in history from the point of view of a was sixty five million old Mammoth. Oh, right? see, no, no, no. You're, you're, you're thinking of the uh, Triceratops that's 67 right. million years old. The Mastodon is 13,000 years old. They're fairly, uh, they're fairly recent. Yeah. yeah, what am I talking about? A woolly mammoth. <laughs> it's like I didn't even – I read the book. I did, that sounds like I didn't. Yes, yes. The, the most recent Ice Age, that's where they suffered. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the reason I find that is because like it's – so those first ones had a much more of a human on-the-ground element. And then this one was much more science-based and like mm. it showed a love of science and history, which is uh, two things that I very much enjoy as well. That's why I think I liked the putting the characters in there. So were those elements of the first two books or was it more this was a focus of what you wanted to do right now? Because that science element, yeah, it didn't seem like that was as big a part of these yeah, I mean, to be honest, those early books, they exist, they came out, they didn't, they found a small audience, but they didn't do great. And now I don't really think about them that much anymore. It's it's almost like Mammoth was like the reinvention of, of, of me as an author. And, you know, my next book will be more in that vein. And so will the one after that. I've sort of found the, the thing that I, the things that I'm interested in now seem to be I'm able to channel them into the books and I'm interested in a lot of different things. And they're books of ideas where I sort of throw a lot of things in there and have a lot of diversions and indulge my brain in looking at odd little moments in history. And that seems to, it seems to work for me. I, I, I suddenly don't anguish as much over the writing of them as I did with the very human stories. I'm probably not great at telling human stories. <laughs> Or telling them through through the prism of of being a human, I mm. kind of like the external observer on humanity. I think that's a bit um, easier for me to get my head around for some reason. Mm. I think isn't there? A, I'm sure there's a quote somewhere I could remember where like the, any writer's first book is always about them. Because <laughs> it's always it always takes a few books for you to like find your voice of what you actually like outside of that because you're just speaking to your own experience the first time. So right, and that's and that is you know probably largely true. It does create some difficulties in the modern publishing world because you're not given as much chance to develop your your career anymore as it used to be. I mean, there's plenty of authors who never hit their straps until their sixth or seventh book, but now you know even getting that far is 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 quite a difficult achievement. You know, the industry tends to focus a lot on 
debut authors and then you never hear from them again. <laughs> There's not as much support for the development of a of a career in in publishing as there used to be, I don't think. So, you know, being dogged and I know, I know plenty of people who had a great first book out and had what sounded like a cool idea for a second book and it never happened because, you know, their first book didn't sell well enough or they couldn't it's it's there's this sort of misconception that once you're in, you're in, but you're not. You're sort of in and then you're out immediately and you have to try and get back in again. So every book you have to reconvince publishers that, no, I, look, it's it'll be okay. It's going to work. I, I know what I'm doing. And they're like, mm, do you though? Uh, you know, unless you've got hundreds of thousands of sales, they're they're usually pretty skeptical. So you do have to reconvince them each time of the merit of what you're doing. It's which um, is, it's not like you'd say, oh, I've got a couple of other ideas here on the on the back burner. I'll just I'll just chuck them your way, and you'll publish them for me, right? No, that's no. not how it works. Is that is that like a Australian thing, or is that just like a global way it is now? I I think globally it's sort of become that way now, and you you do have to um, start again from scratch a little bit each time, which is incredibly frustrating, and you get forgotten pretty quickly, you know. Mm. So if you you know have five or six years between books by the time your next one comes out people will be like who the hell is that <laughs> i know it's just it's criminal like is it hey, hey who's who's good straight away like you know what i mean like it's very right. rare so people just tell totally. that story but it's like it takes a few goes around to really start perfecting your style of course in, so. in in any artistic discipline you know you, you need to you need to be able to you know foster your practice over a number of years and get good at it you know you not you don't just pick up the violin and you're like a virtuoso immediately so and i think there's writers don't get much of a chance for that anymore you're kind of expected like large things are expected of you right from the beginning and if you don't deliver then you know, good luck, buddy, and getting your getting your second book up, and you know, and, and authors face that you know difficult second album syndrome as well, where they're they pour all their energy for years into their first book, and then it does well, and the publisher's like, so book two, that's ready to go, right? And they're like, what? What do you what do you mean? And they have to go and record ten songs in the space of you know six weeks, and it's a disappointment to everyone. <laughs> It's very different. Yeah, I know what mm. you mean. It's always that first one. You've got, you've got your whole life building up to the first one and the next one's like two years. Like, okay, yes, that's right. right. Yeah, that's and dealing exactly with right. all like these new things that have happened because of the first one you've released. So mm, That's right. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. imagine it's complicated. So with the in terms of the science angle now that you've, you've gone and these little stories and historical things, was this part of like, it sounds like that relates to your library experience as well because maybe you're in there reading, but obviously somewhere like a library, you're going to be getting a lot of fun facts about a lot of different things. Yes, yes, and I and I did read a lot of nonfiction in the library, and you know hi- history books about you know periods that I wasn't learning about in school. You know, because in school it's very prescribed, and you know you're like, well, you're going to learn about the Tudors or whatever. And like, oh God, that's great, you know. But what you really want to learn about is the Vikings. So, <laughs> so you have to go and do that research yourself, and that probably. Um, is what led me to this point as well. It's funny to think of the things that form you as an artist. And it's, I often think it's in my case, it's just such a multiplicity of influences, not just, not just weird history books from the library, but, you know, horror books that I would flick through looking for dirty bits, you know, and, and, you know, seventies movies and Depeche mode, or, or just like the video games, PlayStation games. There's so many different things that have, influenced me in my life so it's often quite hard to pinpoint the origin of something and it's a bit of a tricky um, moment for authors because you know you do often get asked um, questions like you know how did you come up with this idea well what a question you, you might as well say how does your brain work can you please explain it to me and it's sometimes impossible to and you so you end up with these fairly rote answers that you know, are a bit pat and aren't don't really aren't a very good summation of the truth. And I have a terrible tendency as an Irish storyteller to go off piste and, as you've probably already realised in this interview, and and answer questions in a variety of different ways. So the same question, I'm sure, if you look back through interviews of mine, you'll see I've answered the same question, you know, ten different ways. And with Mammoth, there was so much for me to talk about with that book that. There's certain interviews where I talked about some aspects of it and didn't mention all this other 
all these other things that happened. But then other interviews, I would focus on one of these other little things. And if you listen to all the interviews, you'd think I was talking about 12 different books. Yeah. Well, I mean, something like Mammoth, it does, it does cover a broad range of things within it. So yeah, I could see how easily you could fall into that. But that's also very useful when it comes to promoting a book. And I realized that, you know, through my experience in the end, I was at a, an event at the Melbourne Writers Festival once just sitting in the audience and Camila Shamsi, who's the Pakistani English author, she had a book out called Burnt Leaves, which was partly set in Japan just after the Americans had dropped the atomic bomb. And it was a very serious book and it was, you know, in consideration for a lot of prizes and so on. And she had a big crowd and I'm sitting in the crowd and it's all going great. And then right at the end, audience questions, which is always a, a shamozzle. And, and some woman in the audience said, I love these sections set in Japan. How long did you live there? Camila Shamsi said, oh, I've never been to Japan. And there's a collective gasp from the crowd. <gasps> She's never been? And yet she wrote about it. Oh, and she lost them. She lost the audience. And at the end of the event, most people just walked out and she hardly anyone wanted to come and get a book signed. And I thought, and as an audience member, I was like, oh, okay. Oh, she made a mistake there. She basically said she just looked it all up on the internet, which is what everyone does, right? You know, you don't, you don't have to go and live in world, post-World War II Japan to be qualified to write about it. But so, yeah, she got herself in a bit of a tight corner there. And since then, I always thought, you know what? It's good to have non-fiction, real stories to tell when you're talking about a book um, because people can then get their head around it. So when it came to something like Mavith, I thought if I'm just going to tell people uh, it's a bunch of talking fossils, they'll be out. They won't be interested. But if I can talk about the real humans and the real historical things behind it and the odd facts that I un uncovered, then it makes it more compelling. And sure enough, when that book came out, the ABC were all over me because it's just so easy to be a guest on, the, on, on some ABC, sh the science show or whatever, because you can talk about cloning, you can talk about President Jefferson. There's all these different things, real world things that you can talk about that relate to your book. So I'm glad I kind of worked that one out uh, because mm. otherwise it would seem like a very tough premise to sell. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, like, I'll be honest, my gut reaction when I heard you telling that story just then, I was like, oh, she hasn't been and she's writing all this stuff. But then I thought about it for three right. seconds. I'm like, wait a second. If you were just writing about a fantasy world or a time back before the last 20 years, you haven't been there either. You're basing this on, yeah, research and, and looking into the accounts of people. Who've right. Been and, that, so, and Camila yeah. Shamsi is an incredibly intelligent woman. So, you know, I'm sure she did her due diligence and, and research into what it was like for victims, uh, survivors of the atomic blast in Japan. She didn't just make it up off the top of her head. But why is that not? Why is her research not not respected? You know, it's. But that sort of speaks to you know more general difficult themes in the literary world these days about appropriation and who has the right to tell stories and so on, which are very legitimate, but are very divisive as well. Yeah. I've heard some people talk about that. And it's, and it's, it is a good conversation to have, but obviously I, it, yeah, it should always be done where anyone can tell any story, but don't be lazy about it. That's all. Like make sure you do the research and stuff. So that's the sort of bottom line that comes yeah. out of that argument is like, all right, you can write whatever you want. Sure. But don't fuck it up. Don't, you know, don't do something stupid and, and just dash it off, you know, which is mm. um, always a risk. Yeah, exactly. And I had to be really careful about that stuff with, you know, doing these historical books because there's so many, you know, nerds out there who will pick it apart and say, well, actually, you said President Jefferson was there on 14th of July and he was only there until the 12th of July. So you're wrong. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> All right. Well, so to go to go on another tangent now, and I, I I didn't know about your upbringing in Belfast during the Troubles. It's obviously a very intense time, and it would make sense that a story about survival would be something that appeals to you. So mm. there's kind of two themes there that I want to kind of unpack. Um, one is you mentioned already this feeling of loneliness, and I guess I've again because of my experience only with Mammoth having read that, but that feeling of loneliness obviously is. If, you, if you're a 13,000-year-old mastodon, you're going to feel that sense of loneliness. And you kind of do capture that a little bit in the book without going into it in, like too far down that path. But obviously, that's a major feature of I'm Legend as well. So so mm. is that something you felt and did that resolve itself naturally? Was there a thing involved in that journey for you? No, that's a good question. And basically, I think I, I was quite a precocious sort of child that, and I didn't quite understand 
how I had come from my parents. Even at a very young age, I thought, why am I here in this place? This this doesn't seem right. I, I seem to have been born in the wrong place. And I used to joke about it with my parents and say, you know, did you find me in a glowing orb at the end of a long furrow in a field and raise me as your son? Or was there a mistake at the hospital? Was there, you know, the Romanian ambassador was, was in town and there was a mistake with the babies? Like, what? what how, how, it just made no sense that I was there. I seemed so different from them. And, you know, it's a bit of a generational thing too, but I never really felt like I was, like I belonged in Belfast and felt like a real fish out of water, ironically, you know, in the place where I was. It probably didn't help that it was, you know, blood and guts on the news every night and people getting blown up and shot and, you know, kids I went to school with died or tortured or all sorts of, you know, nasty shit, you know. I grew up in a war zone and it's funny how it affects you because you become a bit deadened to it. You kind of have to get used to hearing horrible news every day because if you don't you know, develop a coping mechanism you're not going to make it you know mm. you'll be you'll be messed up for life so you it kind of washes over you after a while and I didn't really understand that until I left there I, as soon as I turned 18 I was like I'm gone mm. and I lived in Scotland and France initially and I was I remember one time I think I was in England and there was some news story about someone had been murdered and everyone at work where I was working in a data entry place were really upset, even though they didn't know the person. It wasn't even in the same town. And I thought, why are they upset about this murder? And then I realized that I was sort of dead inside to that kind of thing. I was, it, it just didn't affect me. And I started to notice that other things about um, violence and so on didn't really have any effect on me either i mean i grew up around a lot of guns because the obviously there was the army the british army were on the streets you know helicopters landing in the field disgorging troops and the police force there were heavily armed you know i had police officers hold a gun to my head for a laugh whenever i was a child <laughs> that sort of thing so, so you know and i saw a lot of guns my next door neighbor he well, we had these neighbors who moved in and their father was a policeman and he let us play with his guns and he thought it was funny. So you just get used to horror a little bit mm. and it's and being Irish, you kind of resort to humor and banter and, you know, at, at, at times like that because they're coping mechanisms, right? And it's probably why I, I'm still a bit like that today. You know, I laugh in the face of danger, <laughs> but but I sort of do a bit, and I, I, I sort of think if someone pulled a gun on me now in a public space, everyone else would be ducking for cover, and I'd probably just roll my eyes and go, "Okay, so are you going to put that down? Are you going to give it to me, or am I going to take it from you? What's how's this going to play?" You know, I, I I just probably wouldn't have the same reaction that a lot of other people would have. Yeah, it'd be like, I'm home uh, again. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So the loneliness part of it, I I did feel quite lonely there that I didn't belong there. And I always knew I would leave. It was just killing time until I could leave and never really went back, to be honest. You know, the occasional visit. My father died last year from COVID. My mom is still alive. And although she's got Alzheimer's and probably wouldn't recognize me if she saw me but so they're pretty old and I don't really have much connection there anymore so yeah Ireland is an odd one for me Uh, you know people have a very patriotic sense of the place where they grew up often and and a strong sort of spiritual connection to places like Ireland that seem sort of jovial and happy but for me up in the north it, it wasn't it wasn't great and I don't have a a great love for the place and um really pisses me off whenever I meet someone and they're like, oh, you're Irish. Do you like you too, the river dance? I'm like, you'll like my fist in your face in a second. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was going to be changing my next question now. No, well, it's interesting you're saying that because like – with Mammoth specifically, you, you the story almost takes quite a turn, I felt like, almost halfway through and becomes very much an Irish tale about immigrants mm. traveling. So it's funny you're saying this as like your most recent book seems to have quite uh, like almost like 
focus on the Irish element of immigration, which I didn't think it, would go hand in hand. It does, and I, I probably didn't see that coming either. And <laughs> when it happened, I was like, oh, looks like I'm doing this. Hmm. I wasn't expecting to take a little jaunt into into Ireland and talking about the Irish diaspora and and the idea of Irish people trying to survive outside of Ireland, which, so maybe that, you know, I've often said mammoth has got nothing to do with me as a person, but maybe it actually really does speak to something very important to me, which is this idea of what does it mean to be removed from your from your country and your homeland and how does how do you then relate to that going forward i still you know do struggle with ideas of irish nationality and um, still got my passport and sort of a little bit proud of that but also at the same time i don't know if i would ever live there again but who knows we don't know what <laughs> i didn't see any of this coming so yeah. god knows where, god knows where i'll be in 5 years <laughs> no, he did not expect to be uh, the, the editor for the victoria museum so yeah no <laughs> no i did not know that was going to happen <laughs> yeah it's funny you say that but it's like so there's such an irish element in the book to be like oh, i didn't really think and notice it <laughs> it's a bit of a it's a bit of yourself well, in there i feel like th- there is and um you know because the book features so many real historical personages and real historical events the irish brother and sister in the book whom i specifically gave very difficult to pronounce gaelic names and didn't explain them until the end which kind of annoyed a lot of people because they've been saying them wrong the whole time it's kiva and conacher although they're strange spellings yeah Um, yeah. (laughs) well kiva is c-a-o-i-m-h-e how annoying is that and conacher which is the old form of Connor is C-O-N-C-H-O-B-H-A-R. So of course. of course it is. There's no there's no actual K or V in either of those names, but this yeah. but it sounds like there are. But that whole section with them traveling up the river, you know, going after the Lewis and Clark expedition to try and recover, try and catch up to them to sell them mammoth bones. That followed very closely my research into the Lewis and Clark expedition. So there's specific parts of the river are described in that that are lifted almost um, verbatim from the Lewis and Clark diaries. But those, the Irish, twi- uh, the Irish brother and sister siblings, they're two of the only invented characters in the book. And people are terribly disappointed when they find that out. So many people have commented on that section of the book as being their favorite part of it and are just devastated to find out that Kiva didn't actually exist. <laughs> Although she is representative of a lot of Irish women of that time. So that's my excuse. But but I, I, am, I am taking that to heart. And my next novel that I'm you know working on now, I'm researching at the moment, I am... I'm going to satisfy readers who enjoyed that part of the book, and I'm going to I'm going to play ball this time and, and uh, give them what they want. Nice. Well, you know, if if you have to, you know, that's right. <laughs> the so to go on for another tangent now, because talking about the book Mammoth, and again, this is this is a bit different. And funny enough, it does actually. I Am Legend was an excellent choice to relate stuff together here because the other side of this is obviously the extinction level event that happens in I Am Legend, which also is traced through a mammoth very clearly. And I think you could, I'm sure people have done many associations between that and the current state of the planet with climate change and all that. Was mm. uh, was these concerns stuff that you have or is this just like a cool idea because you like the sci-fi oh. element, which would be fine God. if that's it or is it something oh, else? Just, just a, a long-term obsession with the with extinction and the end of the world and uh, when is it going to happen? Hurry up. <laughs> okay. <Kind laughs> Hurry up. Down. I can't wait to be the guy in I Am Legend, you know. But We could unpack yeah, that clim- for hours, I feel like, but yeah. That's right. Yeah, you could. <laughs> the, the climate change aspect and obviously – the mammoth is you know, part of the megafauna. There's sections in the book set during the end, towards the end of the ice age, when you know us irritating humans have turned up and started to dramatically alter the landscape. About you know twelve, thirteen thousand years ago, when we got a little bit smart, a little bit clever clogs, and started to you know murder everything in sight and build huts from the skins and bones of animals, and started lighting fires, cutting down forests burning everything and the planet got hotter and all the, all the animals died. <laughs> well, I don't think and it was then, human. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't human caused the planet getting hotter. Well, it was a cycle, right? 
Well, that's right. There's 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 different viewpoints, scientific viewpoints on whether how much the arrival of humans had on the climate of the planet back then or whether it was going through a natural cycle anyway. We probably didn't help because we never really do. We always seem to make things worse everywhere we go. <laughs> Yeah. probably lighting all those fires probably didn't help but and you know you fast forward probably uh uh change of the vegetation everywhere because uh we would have done some i, I read a book called guns have you read guns germs and steel by Jared no. oh that's a great book about like looking at that period specifically and how that influenced us today and like how we formed from those early ancestors and it's talking about things like the large scale, which I think indigenous cultures here in Australia did quite a bit, but it was kind of a thing that happened where we reshaped the land almost naturally Mm. because of the way we would farm quote unquote, because we would just be picking these seeds and then they would drop in a certain way, which would then actually naturally kind of develop. So yeah, it could be, I could see it on a large scale enough, I suppose. I don't know if we were that many people though. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there wasn't a lot of people around, but they certainly did kill a lot of animals because it was just a smorgasbord of creatures just waiting to be slaughtered, and yeah, um, nothing. Yeah. T- and, and they had no real fear of the humans. So there were there were a couple of million mammoths, and in a short space of time, there were none. And so, and they were performing a job, the mammoths, in that the huge mega herds were circulating the northern part of the globe, which where the land mass was all sort of linked. There's the great sort of steppe. And so it was cold and dry because they would just stomp down the snow and the ice and make, and it kept the ground cold and hard and sort of served a little bit as the earth's refrigerator. <laughs> so and it's very then, impact then, yeah. And then whenever we killed them all, there wasn't, they weren't able to do that anymore, so everything started to melt. And wow, yeah, which is why they're trying to bring them back <laughs> for that purpose again. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that in the book. I was like, is that actually what they're thinking about doing to try to get? Oh, it so is. It so is. There's a couple of documentaries you can watch where because they've recovered viable DNA from mammoths carcasses that have thawed out in Siberia. You can see, you know, people cutting bits of flesh off the mammoth and like some guy cuts a bit of flesh off the mammoth and eats it because he wants to be the first person in 13,000 years to have eaten mammoth. Doesn't even check to see what parasites or diseases that might be in it and and there's and they have blo- and they're ble- and they're bleeding some of them so wow. they have viable DNA and there's um you know synthetic biology labs in Korea, China and in Harvard all of whom are currently working on bringing the mammoth, resurrecting the mammoth from the dead and other species too. So. Yeah, but specifically for that ecological benefit. Well, there's already, there's already a part of Russia, which, I mean, God knows what that's going to happen now, but there was a part of Russia set aside called Pleistocene Park where they were going to release um, mammoths there and once they actually grew them in the lab and raised them, and they would be raised by elephants and then release them there and... The idea was to rebuild the herds and see if they can get back to work, um, stomping down the the snow and ice, and try yeah. to lower lower the temperature in Siberia. <laughs> yeah, what's left? What's left of the ice? What's left anyway? of it? Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's that's. I mean, yeah. I mean, again, yeah. It's one of those things where everyone talks about humans being an extinction thing now, but it's like we were doing that. <laughs> We've been doing that since we started and we've been killing yeah. everything. Like, as in, oh. it is actually just, we've, it's less now that we actually killed more when we first started. Yeah. Like, yeah. We've been agents of chaos since we came along right from the beginning, you know, mm. so nothing much has changed. No. Yeah. And I guess that's, yeah, like, it, which ties in with your fascination with, you might just be the last man on earth. <laughs> fingers it's crossed, a, you might get there. Fingers crossed. It's a, it's a fantasy, but it's probably a poorly chosen one because, the reality of that would would probably not be very pleasant. Look, yeah, I imagine so. I mean, it'd be, be fun, fun for a while, but um, eventually you'd get um, you'd get pretty annoyed with it. I feel like it. Like you skateboard down enough empty sh- streets or freeways, and then you'd be like, you know what? Yeah, it's maybe having someone else to was, see me do this sick. I wish there was someone else here to see this. That's right. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, I guess is there anything else I want to kind of go into? I think we've kind of gone on. Oh, actually, one more thing, just again, randomly. This is a sci-fi book. Is there a sci-fi something you enjoy or is that like, and that ties in with your science appreciation or is it just kind of whatever? 
Yes, I, I've, I've always been a, a sci-fi fan, and I do quite like so-called literary books that have the sort of sci-fi fantastical element. I probably would read more science fiction than I do literary fiction, and it, it is odd to think that I'm trying to straddle those worlds because you daren't call something science fiction in Australian literature because then it gets consigned to the dustbin and not doesn't get respected. So... You have to be a little bit careful about the nomenclature around this sort of thing. It boggles my mind that when you think about like, I mean, like not that I want to discredit literature in the grand scheme. It's beautiful and mm. amazing and I love it. But to dismiss the other one though seems just as much a mistake. I mean, I just I just reread uh, Slaughterhouse-Five recently and I was just like, this is, it's just such a masterpiece. Like, like mm. it's such a masterpiece that, yeah, to discount that as not being literary or anything is mind-blowing. Yeah, and literary fiction in itself is a is a very niche genre. So I don't know what happened to make that the dominant art form where that is somehow better than the other art forms, whether that's better than romance or crime or or science fiction. Uh, I mean, it's, there's probably a bit of insecurity behind it because, you know, romance, crime and science fiction sell a lot better than literary fiction generally. So there's a bit of jealousy going on there. But I'm quite pleased that I'm finding that sort of middle ground where like, Mammoth sold really well. And then when we got some of the sales figures, the very in-depth ones, we realized that it, it had sold not so great in sort of inner urban areas and sold really well in regional and rural areas. And so your your educated, so-called educated classes probably poo-pooed it a little, but your real ordinary genuine person, I'm like my mechanic friend who reads one book every five years. He's like, that was great. I really enjoyed it. You know? Yeah. So that appeals to me, that that idea of you know getting books into the hands of people who think books are not for them. Mm. That books are exclusionary and, you know, and, and therefore, you know, smart people. I like to defuse that and get in underneath that a bit, but that can make you a little bit of a pariah in the industry because most people who work in the industry are the very educated classes who, who decide what books get published and mm. they tend to publish the books that they want to read themselves and forget sometimes that they're running a business. <laughs> All right, we're finally getting into the part, the juicy bits, burning oh, on the publishing I shouldn't have said industry. That. I shouldn't have said that. That's it. Yeah. Take down of the publishing industry, but it's why you know, not? <laughs> look, look, it's fair. You know, when you see some of the books that have been really successful in Australia in recent years, you know, Trent Dalton's book and Jane Harper and books like that. You know, they're they're they are a bit poo pooed by the literary um, establishment, but they sell gangbusters to all sorts of people from all walks of life. So. People do want to read books, and I think it's important that we are inclusive in in a different kind of way when when producing books. We, we we mustn't forget the millions of people out there who actually enjoy reading, but who just can't find anything they like to read. Mm. Yeah. No, no, no! Please, we don't want them. Please, just just, just <laughs> no, no, no. That's it. God, God forbid we God. have sales that keep us alive for another few years. That's it. <laughs> Okay, well, look, I'll stop it there before we go too deep into this. You know, yep. I need you. I need you publishing more books. So let's leave. That's it right. That. Let's, let's um, not get me cancelled. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, one last thing. Do you, sh- do you want to shout out anything right now? People can follow you somewhere, or people can check things out. I I have issued social media for for years, but I am on Instagram. Fly the Falcon. It's a long story, and, and you're Irish. You'll tell it. So yes, that's right. I will, and I'll tell um, twenty other stories whilst I'm trying to tell that story. So yeah. um, there you go. And obviously, I'm working at the museum. We're doing some books with Hordus, the Triceratops, at the museum. And I have another right, and you'll you'll like this. I, ha- I have another. My fourth adult book that I mentioned earlier is coming out in September. We did have a argument about the title, so I'll run the title by you, and you can tell me whether you think it's a terrible title or um, a good one. The title is Here Be Leviathans. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That's So the issue is I mentioned it ages ago on an interview on Late Night ABC show, and the presenter said, Leviathans, what's that? That's, I was going to say that was going to be my next question. Like, Right. Yeah. Like, this, I, is the, I, this, 
Yeah, you don't want to be insulting to an audience by being like, they don't know what that word means, but I feel like a lot of people might not. Right. That's, yeah. the, that's the problem. A lot of people probably won't know what a Leviathan is, which is, a, a, you know, it's a biblical sort of thing about a large sort of sea creature that rises from the depths, you know. Yeah, um, and also and like sounds it, a lot like a reference to uh, Moby Dick as well, right? Right, exactly. And it used to be on old old maps. So they'd say on land, they'd say, here be dragons because they didn't know what was there. And maybe here be leviathans might be in the seas, you know. All right. So it's this idea that there's, you know, monsters that you haven't encountered yet. But of course, it's now we've decided to go ahead with that title. So some people will be like, okay, here be what now? I have no idea what that is. So <laughs> there you go. I'm already creating a difficulty for myself. Love but it. Yeah. That, that is a book of nine I hesitate to say short stories because a lot of them are very long from the points of view of various animals and non-living things. So there is a grizzly bear who has eaten the brain of a teenager during a fun run and inherited his memories. <laughs> there is a monkey test pilot in the 1950s, which is based on a true story. The first, the first monkey to make it to space and back alive. There is an airline seat narrating the story about its average work day. There's a, a hotel room telling you the story of a couple that it's trying to help them conceive a child. There is, what else, a, a colony of platypodes or platypuses who rescue some German backpackers, but the platypodes can talk because they were experimented on in, in, in a lab in Brisbane and then released into the wild, and they're really Aussie. So those kind of yeah. you know, tales really that are very... Typically me, off-kilter, sort of alternative views of, of humanity. <laughs> That's great. You're really testing out these uh, publishers with their distaste for sci-fi. I love it. <laughs> I really am. I'm really pushing to, to see how far I can go with this before someone says, no, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough of you, Chris, then. <laughs> that's enough of you. You're done in this time. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for being on. That was re really fun. Yeah, so I guess that's it. So, yeah, cheers for, thanks thank for being on. Thank you very much, George. It's a pleasure, even though you are a dingle man. Okay, it sounds strange when you say it without the context of it being a town. It in, does. In it, sounds, it's, it sounds wrong. I'm a yeah, dingle sorry. man and proud. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com.